Well, good morning. These are exciting times, aren't they? A lot of neat things going on. It looks like God has found the man here to come and uh, be the shepherd of this flock, and we're just plumb excited about that with you. God's good, isn't he? Doesn't he provide for our every need all the way along the way? He's so faithful and so good to us, and uh, even when we certainly don't deserve it, right, which is how much of the time? All the time, that's right. <laughs> we don't deserve it, but how great is the God that has the grace and forgiveness that we sing about that uh, comes alongside us and gives us all that we need and more to be everything that we need to be in Him. Hey, we have a great deal of joy today. We have a family here over here on the side that I want to embarrass. Stand up and give your testimony. So let's start with you, Kellen. <laughs> this is a, a, a family from Kansas. You know, we had some farmers in here oh, a month or two ago, not farmers, uh, but Kansas folk nonetheless. There are people in Kansas that don't farm, although they have some land and stuff, I think, still, don't you? So uh, great, great, sweet family loves the Lord out here on a little bit of a vacation birthday trip and uh, uh, called us up and wanted to come by. So we're happy to see them. Kellen, who uh, got me to teach a Greek class one time at the church. And why don't you give us a little Greek right now, Kellen? Uh-huh. Wasted my time, didn't you? <laughs> no, no. Just a great family. I hope you have an opportunity to shake their hand and tell them hi. Uh, just as the Lord has uh, his people all over, right? Even in California and even in Kansas. And we're so thankful for God who uh, uh, gives us those relationships. The first time you met, you, you're, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you'll be spending eternity with these folks over here. So get to know them a little bit. So you don't have to like introduce yourself there. Anyway. Well, we began last week, open your Bibles to Colossians. We began last week to look at the Christian's use of his mouth. You'll remember uh, that we took a look last time at prayer, uh, which is a powerful use of our, our, of our tongues, right? Uh, and if you remember from last time that our prayer life should be ardent, that is, it, it should be passionate, it should be devoted, it should be persistent. Uh, our prayer life also should be attentive. We want to uh, be alert to what we can be praying for. We want to be alert during our prayers, uh, sensitive to the Lord's leading. We want to be alert to see God's answer and, and give Him thanks as well. So it ought to be ardent, it ought to be attentive, and it ought to be appreciative. We should go to our time of prayer always, just like Paul models for us here in the book of Colossians, with an attitude of thanksgiving all the time. And, and we saw that as we pray, we are showing our reliance upon God, and we should be praying with a readiness, right? to be used as part of the answer when God so chooses to do that. In Colossians 4.4, Paul asks for prayer that he might make it clear the way he ought to speak. Remember that from last time? He, he prays that, Lord, I just want to have the right thing to say at the right time in the right way. And here in Colossians 4 and 5, which is 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, Paul defines that a little bit further, the way that we ought to speak. He has dealt with the mostly private use of our transformed mouth prayer, and now he turns to the public use of our transformed mouth, and that is proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when God changes a man, a woman, or a child into a new creation, he works on the whole person, right? 
This is not like uh, you're saved and you're just kind of partially saved, right? And then you got a bunch of extra steps that make you completely saved. Now, there is a process to salvation. We've talked about that. Uh, the Bible talks about salvation all the way from the time of predestination all the way through glorification. But when we're talking about the, the point of justification, that is something that happens in a person by the power of God as his spirit wroughts this amazing work upon mankind, right? And when that happens, we have contained in us everything that we need, right? And he gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. He works on the whole person. Now, as we've seen in Colossians so far, he works. When you're saved, you're not perfect, right? Give me this if you know that, right? If you don't know that, do this for me. Watch this. Look around the person next to you. Go ahead. Do it. Are they perfect? <laughs> no, I'm not going to put you on the spot, right? We're not, we're not perfect, right? Look up here. That's all you had to do. You didn't even have to turn your head. I'm not perfect, right? But, but what happens is God saves us, and he looks at us through the blood of Christ. It's a transformed work of redemption, and, and he looks at us, and he begins then to sanctify us. That's the next process in the big picture of salvation, right? And he's working on us, and he's changing us, and he's working on us, as we've seen in Colossians, from the inside out. That's why Paul, as he's dealing with the Colossian heresy, he, he goes to that great theology in chapters 1 and 2 and talks about Christ and talks about his sufficiency and how we don't need to add anything to Christ. And then he says, after two chapters of theology, he goes to the, the practical application and he says, hey, therefore, there's some things that ought to be visible and happening in your life. And he talks about how we've died and we live a new life. And he moves, as it were, and circles out from the closest relationship to the farthest relationships that we have. So he begins with, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ do to impact our lives? And that is that we put aside things, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech, lying, stuff like that. And we put on new things, right? Love, which is the perfect bond of unity, the peace, uh, gentleness, compassion, kindness, all those kind of things. We have a whole new set of clothes, right? We put on our grace clothes and we get rid of our grave clothes. So he talks about how it impacts us and that's a lifelong affair. But then he moves out and says that impacted life by the gospel will also have an impact on every relationship that you have. And he begins with the next closest relationship, right? He talks about the relationships, and we've looked at that already, between husbands and wives, and then children and parents, and then the place that we spend most of our time other than those times, our workplace issues, employers and employees. And now he's moving out to how, does, how are we to affect the whole world, the world around us? Because we are placed here in the world, we're not of the world, but we're here. And we're not here to be isolated and huddled up in a little uh, uh, compound somewhere, but we're here to have an impact. We come together as believers in the church, but then we go out, right, to carry the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it, just like you and I desperately needed it the first time we got to hear it. So he's changing us, and he's changing those close relationships. And he deals now with how a person deals with the outside world. And that involves, folks, a change in the way that we ought to speak. You know, if you've gotten to know my wife any of the time that we've been here, you'll notice that she has maybe a little bit of an accent. Have you noticed this? I, of course, don't have any, right? She, but she's got a little bit of a Texas twang, right? You don't notice it so much. I'm, I'm, well, anyway, you don't notice it so much. But I tell you what, when we go back to Texas... It really gets thick. 
I mean, we can cross over in, over the Red River into Texas, into the Promised Land, right? And, and we, we cross into there, and all of a sudden, we start talking a little bit more. You know, we just kind of get even more kind of twangy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but when we've moved to new areas, that accent drops off a little bit. You never totally lose it, but uh, it, the language and the style of, of the people that you're around tend to kind of affect you that way. It, it's a little bit of that way when we, come, we, when we become Christians, as the Word of God washes over our minds as we dwell upon it, as we apply, apply it, we see change, right? We're not totally uh, arrived. We still have vestiges that show up at certain times of our sinful, fleshy selves, right? We're not, we don't live without sin perfectly, but as we, be, as we are sanctified, that becomes fewer and farther between. And there's a change that's going on as God is working on us, and he's changing our head, our thinking, and he's changing our heart, which comes out in our activities and our mouths. That's why Jesus, again, says, you know, hey, you know what? You can tell what comes out of a fountain. It doesn't get bitter water and sweet water. There's only one kind of water, really, that comes out. And that's what we're talking about here. I remember when I was a very young child, I had a, a, a grandfather uh, who was probably an alcoholic. And uh, my brothers and I were out visiting them in Dallas, and uh, we, were in, we got into his pickup truck. And we're digging around, investigating, snooping, you know, that kind of thing. And underneath his seat, we find an empty whiskey bottle. With, with a good one, man, screw top lid. And uh, so we're looking at this, and I'm the youngest of three boys, okay? So they're thinking this is a good time to get David. So they, they tell me, why don't you unscrew that lid? And he's a smoker, too. Get his lighter over there and light it up next to it and see what, see what it looks like. As I did that, now, you know, alcohol, this may be new to you. Alcohol is flammable, okay? When you're a little boy, you don't necessarily get that. And I remember when I lit that thing, it was like, right? And all the little bitty hairs on my hand were like gone. It was an empty bottle, right? But it still had vestiges of what had been filling it, right? Now, you take a whiskey bottle and, and like that, and you pick it up, and if you unscrew the lid or whatever it is you do with them, you will smell whiskey, even though it's not full of whiskey anymore. There's a little bit of that left. But you take that bottle, and you fill it with water, and you pour it out. It's a little less, and you do it again, and it's a little less, and over and over again until it's clean, Right? And that's a little bit like the process that goes on with our mouths. Our mouths need to change like these whiskey bottles where as the word of God acts on us, we, we begin to lose bad habits and the things that we talk about become more meaningful rather than less meaningful until eventually only the flavor and the smell and the evidence that comes out of our mouth is that of Christ. How does the word of God say we are to speak? Within Christian environments, I submit to you, this is one area that we hold on to and we consider an acceptable sin. We will talk about things that we ought not talk about. We will talk about people in the way that we ought not talk about them. We will share gossip like the world shares gossip. And we will clam up instead of taking the gospel to people who need to hear it when God says, go ye therefore and tell the world, make disciples. If you've got your Bibles open to Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, we're going to see how the Word of God says that we're to speak. Okay, let's read our text together. He says, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, 
making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how to respond to each person. Paul outlines for us in those two little verses four ways that we ought to speak as Christians. And we need to look at these today, and we need to examine ourselves to see if this is the way that we do speak. And if it's not, we need to ask God to help us to apply these truths to our lives today. Amen? You've got on your outline these four truths, okay? I'm going to change them up a little bit. I'm going to give you a little stuff to add there, okay? The first one is our speech ought to be sound. That's what your outline says, right? See that at the beginning of verse 5. Right out beside the word sound, write the word true. It ought to be true. I'm going to alliterate it. Maybe that will help you remember it too. Our speech ought to be true. Verse 5 says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. Now, Paul's concern here is how do we act with regard to outsiders? Who are outsiders? That's people who are not a part of the body of Christ. That's the world around us, okay? It's not to say that you speak differently to those in Christ, but what he's talking about, again, is how our, how our transformed life affects different groups all the way out to those who are not in the, in the church as well. And this is important, okay, because sometimes believers look down their nose on the lost and dying world as if they're some kind of damaged goods, and they sneer at them, and they, they talk about the way they act in very, very negative ways that do not allow for the gospel to come through clearly. What I'm not talking about here is saying sin is not sin, but at the same time, if somebody who does not know Christ is sinning, what should we be expecting them to do? Have you thought about that? I mean, do we expect non-believers to live like Christians? We kind of do sometimes if we're honest, right? Let me ask you this. Can they? Can they live like Christians if they're not? No. They absolutely can't. Why? Because they have not been redeemed. They have not been transformed. They do not have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them, which gives them the power to do that. Even our, our best works apart from the gospel of Christ, the Bible tells us, are filthy rags, right? The best thing that we can do. So it, when you see an unbeliever sinning, you look at them with compassion in your heart because they do not have Christ and they have no choice but to be like that. And, and the, the thing that we should be most concerned about with them is how do we help them to come to know Christ? How do we tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done on the cross, so that they may have the opportunity for the Father to draw them, the Spirit to save them, and they can be transformed and begin to deal with those things, see? So often we want to push our Christian values upon people in such a way that it just discourages them because they're unable to do that. And may I submit to you that this is harder in the church because the church in our day and age has become watered down, correct? To the point where the church is blended with unbelievers. And so even as you try to deal with sin within the church and things like that, people can't really handle that because of the... They're, they're, there's unbelievers and believers together and it just dilutes what is right and is this possible and can God expect that of us? Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, unbelievers, the watching world. And Paul's emphasis is that when we speak, we need to make sure that our actions match up to our words, that we live a consistent life and that our words also meet with that. And that's what he's talking about here right off the bat. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom. Literally, what the Greek says there is walk with wisdom. 
And walk, all through Scripture, is this idea of your life. You know, walk a worthy walk, you know, is live a worthy life. This wisdom that we're to live with, or walk with, or conduct ourselves with, only comes from God and God alone. Now again, Paul is contrasting this with the false teachers in Colossae, who according to chapter 2, verse 20, had the appearance of wisdom, but they didn't really have wisdom. What we're to walk with is true biblical wisdom. We have that. We are to live our lives before the watching world with godly wisdom. I love what Proverbs 6, verses 12 and 13 says. It says, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet. King James Version says, speaks with his feet there. And what, what is he saying? He's saying, this worthless, wicked person is a guy who says one thing, but acts in a different way. It's hypocrisy. He doesn't really believe what he's saying, and his feet are showing it off. His actions are showing it off. We must abandon as believers the hypocrisy of a mouth that says one thing coupled with a life that says exactly the opposite. So Paul says, conduct yourselves, walk with wisdom. Wisdom here, there's, there's four words you could use in the Greek for knowledge. There's a sunesis, which is understanding. There's epigenosis, which is a knowledge of God. There's sunadesis, which is uh, uh, a knowledge of right and wrong. That, none of those are the ones here. The, the fourth one is the one here, and it's Sophia. Okay, it's wisdom. And this is the type of knowledge that's distinct from the other ones, really. It, it applies head knowledge to the life. That's what wisdom is. We can know things, right? But it has no effect on our lives. Wisdom is when you take truth and apply it to the heart and it comes out in your life's activities that's what wisdom is it takes theory and put it puts it into practice i may understand that the uh, ninth planet i don't guess it's a planet anymore from the sun is, is pluto right but it has no effect on my life so it's a knowledge i have in my head but it's not really changing anything right but when I understand that God has made me a new creature and that he's called me to do certain things and he's given me his Holy Spirit to carry these things out, guess what? I can, I can know that theologically and spout it off as a creed of doctrine. But when I really have wisdom, I understand that and then I go, you know what? I do not have to take the wrong path here because I'm empowered by the Spirit of God, the absolute power of God, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and live out this way before a watching world. Paul says, conduct yourselves, walk with wisdom, applied knowledge. Walk consistent with your talk. See, Christians, we need to be very careful that what we do doesn't contradict what we say. When our words are bounced off the sounding board of our life, may they prove true, may they prove wise, and may they prove sound. You ever see the old bumper sticker? Old fishermen never die, they just smell that way. Such it is with us when our words contradict our deeds. The watching world smells the fishy smell of hypocrisy, and as a result, they discount your God as non-existent, your religion is false, and Jesus Christ is a crutch. The solution, folks, is not shut up. That's not the solution. The solution is to live out the transformed life in accordance with God's word. Be genuine. Live like who you are in Christ. Now, folks, again, everybody in this room, we go out of this place and we say, you know, I want to live genuine today. By 2, 3 o'clock, 
probably a big chunk of us has already failed, right, at some point, right? You know what I'm talking about? So you say, well, man, I, this is never going to work. Well, can I just submit to you that, you know, those times that we fail are great opportunities, right? I mean, when you sin, we don't seek after sin, but when we sin, we have an opportunity to show what the grace of Christ looks like, how to deal with that, how to seek forgiveness, right? How to explain, what a great teaching opportunity is. And don't go do this to teach your kids this, but it'll happen, right? But if you lose your temper or something like that with your children, what a great opportunity to just say, you know what? I want to ask your forgiveness. Here's why. Here's the biblical truth. Here's the way God says I ought to act. I got selfish and acted this way because that's what I wanted to do, right? Please forgive me. That's not what my words and my heart really want to be doing. You see the difference? And the child looks and says, you know what? I'm, I, they, it takes away the perfection of legalism. It says, I'm supposed to be perfect all the time. So they're hiding stuff and trying to pretend all the time on you. And, and it says that look at mom or look at dad and see the consistency. That when, they, when they, their priority of their life, that Bible study, the church, all these things they're doing, it plays out in real things. And when they fail, you know what? They go back to the to truth again and deal with life in the, under the, the, the umbrella of truth. And it makes that truth ring true even when we are imperfect and failing. Live like who you are in Christ. And, and as you do that, then when you speak truth, you speak the word of Christ, your words ring true, and they will be even more impactful to the kingdom of God. The most damage done to any church is done when people who profess Christ decide to, lit, to speak and live differently, inconsistently. I love what Will Rogers said one time. He said, so live that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Our lives ought to be different. We ought to stand out. When we were living in Kansas, you know, you drive along the roads there in the wintertime. You won't understand this in California, but let me see if I can explain it. You drive along the road, there's this thing that comes down out of the sky. You may or may not be aware of this, right? It's called uh, snow. That was it. And this stuff comes down, and it's, it's like really deceiving because it's pretty and white and all this kind of stuff. But when it gets on the ground, and the temperatures are not quite, you know, they're not going back to like 70 or something, it stays there. And it's no longer white. It's no longer pretty and fluffy. It comes crusty brown stuff. And what they do to help you drive on the roads is they have trucks that come out the night before, and they sprinkle on the road salt or a solution that has salt in it. So that, you know, it has a lower melting point, blah, 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 and you don't slide off the road. As a result, what happens is this frozen stuff that's white becomes liquid stuff called water, and it mixes with brown stuff called dirt. And it gets in the grooves that you have on your tires, and it shoots up, and it's flying around, and it sticks to your car. And so it snows, and by, you know, four hours later, your car and everybody else's car, I don't care if you had a white car, tan car, red car, it doesn't matter, it's this kind of dirty beige color. And everybody's car is like that. And you knew when the storm was over, because there'd be that one guy, everybody in the community would hate a guy like this, who would go down to the car wash and clean his car, and then all these gray, beigey cars are driving around, and here he comes with his shiny, bright, gold, red, whatever car. And he stood out. He stood out. Why? Because he was different. 
folks. Now, what we're doing in the church today is we're trying so much to uh, incorporate our culture into the church so that we can supposedly relate to them. The reality is that doesn't do you a bit of good. The church that is impactful, go back to the book of Acts or anywhere else, church history, you will find the church that is different is, is the one that has an impact. The church that stands out. I love what it says in the book of Acts. After Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by God, it says, hey, the, the whole world was looking at them going, uh-oh, we're scared of them, and thousands were being added to their number. How cool is that? Because there, my friends, was the reality. Why would I want to waste my Sunday coming to a place that does the same thing and reacts the same way to all the stuff I see during the week? Let's be redeemed Christians living like redeemed Christians who stand out before a watching world so that the world can even look and say there is an option. There is something different. And when the gospel of Jesus Christ is spoken, it rings true as you see the church living the Christian life. Our lives ought to stand out as different. Our speech ought to match up. Being sound, being true with wisdom. Okay, our speech should be true. That's point number one. Number two, our speech should be timely. I got an extra hour today, right, because of the time change? <laughs> our speech should be timely. Paul instructs us in verse five, look at this, to make the most of the opportunity. Literally, it's redeem the time. Buy it back. This has a couple of inferences, okay? Number one, while it's, while it's still today, act, speak, react, reach out. Now, we think we have forever, right? That person that you want to share the gospel with, you think, well, I'm this week, next week, next month, next year. It's kind of like, you know, when we lived in California the first time, second time, the first time we never went to Yosemite. Why? We lived closer to Yosemite than we've ever lived the whole time in California. We never went to Yosemite because it was what? How, long, how far was it away? A couple of hours? Two and a half hours? We never went to Yosemite. Beautiful. Have you ever been? Who's been to Yosemite? Who has been to Yosemite without taking somebody from out of state with you? All right. Okay. You see, what happens? You live close. You go, well, let's go, we can go to Yosemite. Well, how about this weekend? Well, we'll do it later. You just don't do it. You think you have the opportunity, but you don't do it because it's always there. That's the way it is with the, the folks that we want to share with, the folks we want to come alongside with. We say, well, maybe it's not the best day today, or maybe this isn't a good weekend, or maybe this isn't the right time to, to share this with them. And, and we miss the time. We, we need to get in the business of redeeming the time. Life is brief. I mean, these little children that are in our midst here and in the nursery it will be a blink of the eye. They'll be in high school, right? You know, it just goes by so fast. Right now, it seems like it's going to last forever. But you blink a couple times and you're in your 30s and your shoulders and your pecs have dropped down towards your waistline. You blink again, you're holding your grandbabies and your hair has gone away. And a few more blinks and you're approaching the end of life and you're wondering where your breath is as you're struggling even for that. Life is short. Time passes by. Redeem the time. Make the most of the opportunities. You never know what tomorrow holds. The classic story of this is D.L. Moody. He was preaching in Chicago a series of messages. And he was preaching uh, in one service on October 8th, 1871, one of the largest crowds he'd ever had. And he was speaking from Matthew 27, 22 with Pilate's words, what shall we do with Jesus? And he preached on it and he talked about it and he came to the end of his time and says, tomorrow, next time I'm going to tell you what we should do with Jesus. 
And that night was the night of the great Chicago fire. And thousands upon thousands perished that night. And Moody, the rest of his life, he just was heartbroken about those who perished that would have been in the meetings that had the chance to hear the gospel if he would have just taken that opportunity. While it's still today, you and I, we need to speak up. There's a Southern Baptist preacher that, that named, uh, he's kind of a big-time Southern Baptist guy. His name was R.G. Lee back in the olden days. And he wanted so desperately to share with the guy who did his laundry. And it, he finally, you know, was, he thought about it. and It just wasn't the right time, busy life, busy schedule, all that kind of stuff. One day he finally goes to do it. He goes into the laundromat, and he's not there. His wife's there. He says, well, I'm here to see him. And, and his wife says, you know, he died yesterday. How long are we going to stay mute about the most beautiful thing that man's mouth can ever speak? How how long will we hold back the precious truth from those who so desperately need it? Redeem the time. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's little book, The Screwtape Letters from the 40s, you ever read that? If you haven't, it's a little bit short thing. Grab it sometime. It's really interesting. It's, it's a work of fiction. It's, a, it's basically the premise is there's an uncle, Screwtape, who's writing letters back and forth with his nephew, a guy by the name of Wormwood. And basically he's kind of training him to be a demon. Okay? They're like demons, all right? So it's, kinda, it's, it's certainly fiction. And, but he's basically it has some good kind of insights into ways that people get distracted. One of the things that the uncle wrote as he was trying to help his nephew, Wormwood, be a better demon, he's talking about heaven and, and hell and end times and all that kind of stuff. He says, just make it distant. Make it unreal. If there's no heaven and there's no hell, then there's no hurry. And see, we live practically. Everybody in this room, I think, just about, would have a theology that says there is a heaven, right? An eternal place where the redeemed of God will go. Everybody in this room, I think, would have a theology that says there is a hell, a place of eternal punishment, according to the word of God. But how much do we live our lives like that? If there is a hell, and if it is a place of eternal torment, and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and all that kind of stuff, and the pain never ends, the fire never dies, and it goes on for eternity, which is what the word of God says it is, so it's so, who do you want to see go there? Your worst enemy you don't want to see go there, right? Certainly not a family member, a coworker, or anybody else, right? But that's where they will go apart from Christ. How do they come to know Christ? It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ as we speak that to them, as we make proclamation of the word, that's God's chosen message for us as ambassadors to carry forth. Are we doing that? Are we faithful or are we mute? You say, well, I believe in predestination. I do too, but I also know that God's called me to be faithful and I'm not gonna pass off what he's called me to do to put it under a doctrine and say, well, if I don't do it, he'll get somebody else to do it so I don't have to worry about it and be uncomfortable. He's called you to do it. Open your mouth. Share the truth. There's a sense of urgency here in this verse when he says, redeem the time. The second inference of redeeming the time is not just that urgency, but it's the idea of buying back. There's a cost, right? There's a cost to sharing. There's a cost to opening your mouth to witness. If you do, you, you will get some kickback. You will get some persecution. 
You will have people that reject. If you spent your whole life sharing the gospel with people and you had one convert who went into eternity into heaven and the rest rejected and sped upon you the whole way, would that be all right? I mean, not would it be all right that they're in punishment, but would it be all right that you spent your whole life being faithful and God in his sovereignty chose that one? And because of his use of you, now this one can be in eternity forever. Would you be all right with that? And putting up with the persecution and the heartache and all the struggles that come along with that? We need to be redeeming the time. We need to be ready to self-sacrifice. Our speech should be timely. Let's make the most of every opportunity. We love to sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and we don't use the one that he gave us. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. Our speech should be true and should be timely. Proverbs fifteen twenty three says, how delightful is a timely word. You know, last week we talked a little bit about having a list of folks that you pray for daily, like George Mueller, remember him? Part of it is you're re- be ready to be used by him to share the truth with them too, to tell them about Christ in a timely way with a lifestyle that matches those words. I, I don't want you to, we just need to pause right here. I don't want you to get the idea that this is some duty that is a burden that you strap to your back and go do now. Okay? You can feel that way maybe right now, right? It's like, oh boy, I'm under conviction. You know, I'm not sharing like I ought to. And Pastor David says, go share with people. I have to put a post-it on my computer and remember to do this. Put a reminder, Siri, remind me to share the gospel, right? And it's like, now I'm there, right? I'm at work. Oh, there he is. He might be dead tomorrow like R.G. Lee's laundry guy. I better, better go over there. Hey, Jesus loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. And here's the gospel. And you want to accept Jesus? Does this make sense to you? Here's the Ten Commandments, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, uh, no, no, that's fine. And he walk away going, yes, did it. Check it off. Siri, the reminder's gone. I did it. Right? As a burden, I had to do it. I'm, now he's going to think I'm a nutcase or something probably because I'm a religious freak. But, you know, it's much more than that, isn't it? Here's the perspective. The perspective is not the duty. It is a duty, but it's not a duty perspective. Perspective is not, I need to check this off my list. You know, like I got to get eggs and witness. It's not like that at all. The perspective is, oh, what an awesome opportunity to tell somebody who is dying how they can have a cure to the, what's killing them. Oh, what an awesome thing to be able to tell them the redeeming love of Jesus Christ and to bring that to this person so they can be redeemed and saved. What an awesome thing to help somebody, to come along with somebody. I was blind and now I see. Let me tell you how you who are blind can now see. You see the difference? We don't need to be checklist Christians. I got to do this. No, yeah, you know. But we need to do it from a heart that looks out. Like Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to just gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't have it. Or Paul who said, I would give my own life to see the Gentiles saved. That's the right heart. How delightful is a timely word. Number three. Speech should be true, timely, 
Number three, it should be tender. Look at verse six. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. What does it mean for your speech to always be with grace? John MacArthur says it means to say what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. It's a long list, but it's a lot, there's a lot in there. What's best? What's helpful? What's true? What needs to be said? I'm afraid that many professing Christians have tongues of acid. Speaking words that are selfish and prideful and hurtful and vengeful and arrogant and tactless. We break into cliques and we criticize those who aren't in our camp, who don't part their hair the same way we do. We hold grudges. We make pointed, hurtful comments about those who have hurt us. And the bottom line is we are far too often just like the world. Winston Churchill and Lady Astor, they were not friends. They were always going at it. Always had barbs flying between those two. One day, Lady Astor encounters Churchill in an elevator, and Churchill is drunk. And she says to him in a very judgmental way, she says, Why, Sir Winston, you are drunk. That was my British accent. Anyway, (laughs) Churchill responds, My lady, you are ugly, but tomorrow I will be sober. That's kind of mean, huh? To the point? Quick? How many times have you wanted to say something like that? Lady Astor responds, if I were your wife, I would poison your tea. Churchill responds, if I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> That's not graceful speaking, right? The word grace means it has favor. We need to speak thoughtfully with love, but always, folks, and get this, don't miss this, gracious speech always involves the truth. Okay? You do not sacrifice the truth in the, the idea that it's just not very gracious to speak the truth because you always speak the truth. But how do you speak it? In what? Love. In love. Paul says our speech should be seasoned. Look at this. As it were with salt. What in the world does Paul mean there? Well, salt, you know, has lots of purposes. A couple of them. The primary meaning here, I think, is it makes something palatable, right? Easy to eat. Tasty. I mean, go eat, go get you the finest cut of beef you can find and don't put any seasoning on it at all and boil it in water and then eat it. It will not be, taste like, you might as well just, it doesn't matter, right? Just, what was that? But you put a little seasoning on there, a little salt. Oh man, that changes everything, right? Job 6, verses 6 and 7. This is my son's life verse at one point in his, his little young life. It says, can anything, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? See the point? You put a little salt in there, it's, yeah, it's good and everything for most people. But without it, ugh. And he continues in verse 7, he says, My soul refuses to touch them. They are loathsome food to me. Why? Because they're not seasoned. Our speech needs to be like that. It can be truth packaged up, but it needs to be seasoned, as it were, with grace, with salt. Speaking the truth in a palatable way. I remember when I was growing up in high school, there was a guy, and this was in the, uh, 
oh, early, mid-70s, kind of the hippie generation. Uh, he had a VW Bug. Remember the, like the old Beatles? He had this thing painted with scripture verses all over it. It was white with a bunch of scripture verses. And in big letters he could find, he had on there, repent or perish. It's a biblical truth, by the way, right? Repent or perish. He kind of viewed himself as like a modern-day Elijah who's going around. And he's driving the, <laughs> I guess that was kind of like a camel hair, the VW bug. And uh, anyway, he was driving this thing around. He would get in your face, man. He was all about it, you know. Just, hey, you need to repent. I'm not, I'm not talking about your need. I'm not talking about what God's doing. I'm not talking about why. I'm not talking about any of that. You just need to repent. Or guess what? You're going to perish. His effect, can I just tell you, was, was marginal at best, if at all. Was what he's saying true? Yeah. But you need to give him the truth in a loving, caring truthful way, a way that makes it palatable. Is your, is your speech, as you share with people, as you come along with somebody, is it easy to swallow? By the way, the judgment on this is not do they swallow it because you can come and speak the truth in love and speak it graciously and still be rejected, right? Jesus, did he speak the truth in love? He was crucified. He was scourged. He had thorns. He was mocked. You know, he had his, all this kind of stuff. Paul, did he speak the truth in love? I'm sure not perfectly like Christ, but most of the time he did, right? And he was beheaded. Peter, did he speak the truth in love? You bet he did. What happened to him? He was crucified upside down. Pick a guy who stood for the truth and spoke the truth in love. And a lot of times, there were, well, not a lot of times, always there was some resistance and persecution. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, God says, blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For your reward is great, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go, I didn't speak the truth in love if just because somebody reacts poorly to it. You stand before God and you say, I want to speak the truth. Is it truth? That's easier to, that's objective, right? I can tell if I spoke the truth. In love, that's a little bit more subjective to us, but we know our hearts, right? As, and we ask for the Lord to help us to understand and speak in a palatable way. And even when you're caring for somebody and speaking the truth, that doesn't automatically mean you're going to get the response you want. We've all seen that, I'm sure. But we need to be careful to speak the truth. In the past when I've had to do church discipline, there's one habit that I've always had. I've done church discipline a lot of times, sometimes, very few times does it go all the way. But it has done that before, okay? But the thing that I always do, whether it's the first stage or the fourth stage or whatever, is I spend a lot of time before I talk with them, before I say anything, in 1 Corinthians 13, trying to figure out what love looks like and checking my own heart and getting that, uh, that piece of log out of my eye before I deal with their splinter or their piece of sawdust. You know what I mean? And sometimes when I've done that, I've said, you know what, I have to see this differently and I need to be more patient with it. And other times it's, been, it's really helped me to say the right thing with the right, in the right season. And most of the time, that's been received very, very well. Praise God. Our speech needs to be, as best as it can be, easy to swallow, tasty, prepared. I don't mean watered down. I don't mean devoid of conviction. But spoken truth in love, preaching the word with patience. The secondary meaning of soft 
carries the idea of preservation. Salt was used in the Bible as a symbol of enduring permanence and value. And like in Ezekiel 16.4, a newborn baby is rubbed or washed down with salt for the purpose of cleansing and purification. And, and what, what that means as we season our speech with salt is it can have a purifying effect as we talk and share the truth of God and it is received with an open heart. So there's that aspect of it too. It's not just making it easy to, to swallow, but it's also having an effect of purification on, on, on others. Just take a little time and check, do a little checklist on yourself. Not the person next to you, not anybody else. It, does that describe your speech? Does that describe my speech? Do, do my words, do your words have a purifying, cleansing effect? Are our words delivered in such a way that people can easily swallow them? Are we harsh and cold or quiet? So quiet that there's not even anything to taste. We need to speak sound wisdom at the right time, in the right way, with grace. Our speech should be true, timely, and tender. And then number four, our speech should be appropriate. Here's your T, tactful. You see that in verse six. Paul says there's a purpose. You see it there in verse six, the end of the verse. So that you may know how you should respond to each person. Pray that you will have the right thing to say in the right way. And that, my friends, flows from a heart that is saturated with the word of God and the things of God. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so you pray to God like the psalmist pray in Psalm, Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over my lips. So I may know what to say, and only the right words come out. And God will give you the discernment for the right words and the right person in the right situation. It's James 1, right? If any of you lack wisdom, you go to him and ask for him to give you wisdom. Because here's the danger, right? Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you go into the office, and everybody's going, oh, my laundry man may die, you know? So we're all going in and just, you know? And you know what? I'm not saying tomorrow's the right day. Okay? There's an urgency like we talked about, but we need to know, be sensitive. You know, you don't want to go in and the guy's uh, in the middle of inventory at his work and you're saying, hold on, I want to talk to you about Jesus, you know, and he's like, I, I, I can't hear you. I'm in the middle of all this other stuff. You want to look for the right time and you want to say it in the right way with the right attitude and the right speech, okay? And that's going to be different in every situation, but we're looking for God to give us wisdom on when that happens and how it is to happen. So how's your personal scorecard looking? Is your mouth behaving in accordance with God's plan for it? Is your speech true? Is it timely? Is it uh, tender? Is it tactful? Is your mouth being used privately and, or mostly privately in an effective prayer ministry? Is your mouth being used to share the gospel to a lost and dying world from a life that matches up to what you're speaking? That's what we need to look at. And if not... If we, we find ourselves lacking in that area as believers, we need to repent, right? We need to seek God's forgiveness. And he's a, he's a gracious God who longs to hear us come to him and say, you know, I repent of this and will you please forgive me? And he's like, yes, I'd love to do that. And then commit yourself to using your mouth for his glory. That's how God, that's the chosen method that God uses to reach a lost and dying world. The word of God 
spoken forth by the people of God and lived out by the people of God. That's his way. That's his design. Well, I'm going to make a video. Make a video, but can I just tell you, don't make a video in lieu of talking to people and interacting and having relationships. I'm going to write a book. Great, write a book. But don't do that in lieu of communicating face-to-face as well, where you can interact with them on their concerns and issues that they may not understand. Sharing our faith has been described by one guy as a beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Isn't that good? Unfortunately, many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen at the mouth. John Harper, you may not recognize his name, was a newly called pastor of Moody Church in the early 1900s, and he was known for being an evangelistic guy sharing his faith. He happened to be on board of a ship on its maiden voyage by the name of the Titanic. That maiden voyage was also its final voyage, as you are aware, and Harper died that night in those icy Atlantic waters. But in those last hours, his character, his concern, his sharing of Christ was so evident, just as it had been consistently through his life. Survivors told the story that when the Titanic hit the iceberg, Harper was seen leaning against a rail, pleading with a young man to come to Christ. That's what he was in the middle of. Even as the boat sank, Harper continued to go around and share Christ with people who were most likely about to perish. Four years after the sinking of the Titanic, there was a young Scotsman who stood up in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada. And he told the congregation, he said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was alone drifting in the water that terrible night, the tide brought to me John Harper on a piece of the wreck. He said to me, he said, man, are you saved? I said, no. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then he drifted away. A little later, he drifted by me again. He continued his testimony. He said, when he came to me, he said, are you saved yet? (laughs) I said, no, I can't honestly say that I am. And Harper said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, and you'll be saved. Shortly after that, Harper went down in the water and he continued his testimony. He said, there alone in the night with two miles of water beneath me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Most of us would forgive somebody who's in the middle of the icy Atlantic waters for being concerned with just staying alive and not worrying about telling other people stuff like the gospel. John Harper was a great model to what we ought to be like in talking to people about Jesus Christ because it's the most important thing that can ever come out of our mouths. I am John Harper's last convert. When was your last convert? When was the last time you shared the gospel and you saw somebody saved? Are you sharing the truth of the gospel with people who don't know him? 
Just look at last week. I mean, we fight in the church for freedom of religion. We want to be able to, to, to do all the things politically to make sure we can always tell people about Christ. But look at last week in your own life. Would your last past week been any different if we lived in a country where it was illegal to share your faith, where there was no freedom of religion? Would it have mattered as far as your evangelism? People are perishing all around us with no less urgency than the, the sinking of the Titanic. And the question is, is the church of God ought to be asking itself right now, is, is do we care? Those without Christ need to know that they are separated from Christ and they're destined for eternal punishment, but that there is a way of escape, right? That Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to a holy and just God who loves us and graciously and mercifully wants to redeem us and draw us to himself and give us the gift of eternal uh, life, not eternal death. He paid the penalty for our sins. There's nothing we need to add to it. If we believe on his name, if we repent of our sins and give ourselves to him, he will save us, right? Are we carrying that message? Do we care? By the way, I'm not unaware that in a congregation of this size, there are likely people here who have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And if you're here, may I not be remiss by not telling you the truth. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the finished work of, with relationship with God through the finished work of Christ, you will perish, just like I will perish without that. The work has been done. The way has been made. That's why Jesus Christ came, right? He didn't come here for a little tour of his creation. He was in the throne rooms of heaven, right? Angels attending to his every need. And he stepped out of that, born of a virgin, right? Went through the whole process. The creator God went through the process of being raised by fallen earthly parents. Can you imagine he submitted himself, he humbled himself, he went through that, he lived perfectly according to the law, which had never been done before. And he did that for a purpose. He endured those 30 years of rejection, humiliation, mocking, so that he might redeem man who could not and cannot still redeem himself. We cannot grit our teeth and be good and get saved. The wages of sin is death. And the reality is, every man, woman, and child save Jesus Christ, who's ever put foot on this planet, has sinned at least once. And that one sin goes against your holy God and creator and the wages of sin is death, and he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. That's what the word of God says, Exodus 34, 7. That sin penalty has to be paid. You can't pay it by uh, self-help books and changing your life yourself, because you can't. But Jesus Christ came, he lived that perfect life, he paid the penalty for those sins, so that he may offer to you the free gift of salvation, so that by faith, as you turn to him, 
He will redeem you. He will transform you. He will indwell you. And he will give you directions on how to live your life for the rest of your days to bring glory to him until such time that he glorifies you and makes you a permanent citizen of heaven. The work's been done. It just needs to be appropriate. If you're here today and do not have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, may today be the day where you repent of your sins and turn to him in faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in the word. Lord, uh, we, we, as we study a passage like this, we all think of places that we've failed and, and that we haven't spoken when we should have. When we go through even days or maybe even weeks and, and don't even think about, you know, other souls. It's as if we don't care. Lord, we, we fail so much. We're so easily distracted by this world around us. And that's why the call of Colossians to set our mind on the heavenly things and not the earthly things is so pertinent to our life as we seek to live a radically transformed life by your power. So, Father, we, we come to you and we ask your forgiveness. And we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and pours out your grace upon us and your mercy and you just are so forgiving toward us. But Father, we, we, while we enjoy your grace and forgiveness, we don't want sin to abound. We don't want to be found unfaithful yet again. We want to be increasingly faithful to submit to your truth and follow what you've called us to do. We're slaves to righteousness, not slaves of sin. And so Father, we ask that uh, with your forgiveness, you would uh, embolden us and empower us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ who speak to a lost and dying world the beautiful, wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. As Paul said, of which I was chief. And we can say amen to that for all of us. So Father, we come to you and ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your grace and we ask for your emboldening of each and every one of us to use our speech in ways that have impact for eternity. In Christ's name, amen.